Hi everyone, welcome to Oscar Wild, a podcast about film always counting down to next year's Oscars. I'm Nick Rohrkraut. And I'm Sophia Simonello. And today we have another Oscar Rewind. I love our little transitions in the summer. We don't plan it out this way, but there's always some theme that comes mm-hmm. across. And this week we're going 30 years into the past, your birth year, to the Oscars. And we're talking about the man, the myth, the legend... Steven Spielberg and two of his films that have anniversaries that year, which are the Best Picture, Best Director winner, Schindler's List, and his technical Oscar winner, Jurassic Park. Can you imagine making Jurassic Park and Schindler's List in the same year? (laughs) Two completely different movies, two Mm -hmm. excellent films that are just, they could not be more different in terms of theme, plot, performance, I mean, everything. I think both of these films are tremendous achievements and just show Spielberg's range and also his dominance at the time to be able to win the Best Picture and Best Director Oscars, but also to have the highest grossing film of all time at that time. It's Mm -hmm. just incredible. Listeners, you should try to find another director for us who has had a better year or as good of a year as Steven Spielberg's 1993. I'm so curious like what the other examples are because for me, this one has always stood out as maybe the best year any director has ever had. Yeah, his ability to make blockbusters out of any idea still astounds me and... I mean, his track record is just above and beyond incredible from Close Encounters and E.T. That at the time was the highest grossing. And then he upends that with Jurassic Park that only gets beat by Titanic, which we know is this colossal film. So Mm -hmm. I'm excited to talk about these movies and just his scope and what he can do with these films and how he makes this movie about dinosaurs into this huge philosophical question and brings religion into it and it's just astounding what he can do with movies and then Schindler's List I mean I don't even think I have to preface that with how dark and depressing but real and how massive that is on just the other end of the spectrum so there's a lot to talk about with these two movies so let's just get started with Jurassic Park these are both from 1993 Description here, paleontologists Alan Grant, Ellie Sattler, and mathematician Ian Malcolm are among a select group chosen to tour an island theme park populated by dinosaurs created from prehistoric DNA. While the park's mastermind, billionaire John Hammond, assures everyone that the facility is safe, they find out otherwise when various ferocious predators break free and go on the hunt. This is directed by Steven Spielberg. It stars Sam Neill, Lauren Dern, Jeff Goldblum... Richard Attenborough, and more. It won three Oscars for sound effects editing, sound, and visual effects. So I think what's fun about this movie, especially on rewatch, is how it's for all audiences. And I think it's geared for kids at certain points in the movie. I think at times it's very scary in that way. But watching it now, it is incredibly enjoyable. Just a thrilling adventure that really holds up. And again, there's all of those themes that you can break down and have conversations with, or there are just shots that astound you and you just kind of get lost in either the dinosaurs or what Steven Spielberg can do with a camera. And then just the structure of the film plays 
so well and so fluidly from finding the DNA and meeting the paleontologists and then going to the island and learning about the family and all of the other characters. I think it just is such a wonderful movie. Had you seen this when you were really young? Yes. So this was one that I had watched growing up. So fun story about Jurassic Park that connects to me turning 30 that you mentioned at the top of the episode is that this was the last movie my parents went to see before I was born. And my mom kept the little (laughs) ticket stub in like my baby box with all the stuff from (laughs) when I was born because she saw it when she was very pregnant, as in like two days before I was born. So I let her see the entirety of the movie, thankfully. No emergencies happened during it, but apparently I was kicking very hard. She likes to tell people. Oh my god. Yeah, Jurassic Park has always been a special film for me, and it's mm-hmm. one that I sort of view as a sister film to Jaws, which is my favorite Steven Spielberg movie. And Spielberg also thinks of it sort of as a, not as a proper sequel to Jaws, but as a film that connects to that one, right? It's like if Jaws were to take place on land. And mm-hmm. I think that some of the things that Jaws is most successful in, this film doesn't exactly replicate. And I think that's due to the time. I think that they were clearly so excited to show us these dinosaurs and are they magnificent? I mean, when you see the T-Rex for the first time, it still takes your breath away today. I mean, 30 years later seeing it when I was a kid, I remember seeing it and thinking like, this is, you know, a real dinosaur. It just, it looks good. The effects aren't, they don't feel dated. That creature design is really really amazing and I can't imagine what it would have been like to see it in theaters when it came out and I think what I love about Jaws is that he takes his time to show us the shark Mm -hmm. and that build up and that suspense is what makes me love that movie more than this one where we see the dinosaurs almost right away but again I think that's you know because it's a product of its time it is this grand like action adventure film that really I mean it showcases the dinosaurs in really spectacular ways but it also focuses on the characters and this time when I was watching it I think I was really impressed by how great Spielberg is at handling exposition because it's not something that I feel like burdens or weighs down the movie like having that little Mr. DNA cartoon explain things to us is pretty brilliant you know instead of having that continue on or make it feel like we have to learn all these things about the science of the movie as we go on it feels secondary I think to the adventure at the heart of the film which is why I love it so much I love that little clip in the middle his ability to capture you even in a cartoon in a Spielberg movie yeah in a movie that also relies on real animatronics which is why i like it so much because it that is what makes it not feel dated mm-hmm. and there is some digital animation too i think and that's maybe where it does feel dated but he doesn't rely on it it's not a cgi movie which is why it still packs a punch today but yeah going back to the beginning like when you go into the mine and you're looking you don't really know what's happening but they find this 
fossilized mosquito or bug. And it feels like the exorcist, like you don't know why you're here. You're going on this archaeological dig and they find something that like apparently will tell you what the movie is going to be about. And it comes back where they take the DNA out of that bug and that's how they make dinosaurs. Like it is (laughs) so fascinating of an idea, whether it's real or not, doesn't matter in Mm -hmm. this runtime, but it's such a fun introduction to this world. And you talking about Jaws and waiting to show the shark was building that anticipation. I don't know. It doesn't really bother me here because when you look at the poster, the name itself, Jurassic, like, you know, you're getting into a movie about dinosaurs. And I don't necessarily think that waiting in an hour to show them would have created this other build that I don't know, I think the movie would have been different. Like, Mm -hmm. I want an action adventure going into it. And the way he uses John Williams score and showing us this other world, like it's a theme park that we've never seen in real life. So that in and of itself to me is enough wonder that you like kind of want the dinosaurs early on to see what they look like and how they interact with people. And I think the story plays into that where man feels like they can control everything, but in the end that's not true. And the dinosaurs kind of control them. So It's having those interactions that really is where the movie, to me, is the most fun. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's it makes sense to show them earlier here, especially because this is a theme park. These dinosaurs exist to be a spectacle, not just to the characters in the film, but to us as audience members. And, you know, I'm not a scientist in my everyday life, so I really don't care when a film's science necessarily doesn't hold up, but I think it's believable enough, like you were saying, the way that they Mm -hmm. talked about these mosquitoes and how they were preserved and how they get the DNA from the frogs and other animals to fill in the gaps and everything. I, I don't know. I think it makes sense enough for me to buy into it and see that enough was done on that front to make it something that could happen and I liked the comparison that you made to The Exorcist also because that's another movie where that intro shot makes you realize we are just small lowly humans on this planet don't mess with things that you do not understand (laughs) (laughs) and that's exactly what these scientists are doing here they are taking something that does not exist anymore and thinking that they can control it And, you know, understanding, like, they go into all these debates in the movie about, like, cloning and genetic engineering and things like that. And I like those conversations because it's like the the people know that what they're doing, you know, especially through the Malcolm character, the Jeff Goldblum character, that what they're doing could go horribly wrong. But they do it anyway. And it's not just because of this wonder that people experience when they see these dinosaurs it's also for money and how Mm -hmm. they can bring people into this park and generate more dollars you know it's important to note that like we mentioned in the description of the movie that the john hammond character is a billionaire and he's using his money to do this but also to make more money and i like how the film it tackles issues like that but it's also so much fun I think you can read it through a really serious lens and think about it that way, but you can also 
enjoy it just as a wide-eyed kid loving to see these different types of dinosaurs on screen. And I mean, the kills in this movie also are very fun and violent. Oh, yeah. I mean, the fact that the lawyer gets killed first is incredible. But just all of the chases, too. I mean, later on, we get the... I can only call him Newman. Oh, I know. It's it's <laughs> terrible. I just see him car. as Newman the entire time, too. <laughs> that kill is great, too. And the kitchen scene is my favorite. But, yeah, I think the billionaire part of it and, you know, wanting to be the first to do this... It's interesting because it's Attenborough, mm-hmm. and I feel like he's so lovable on screen, Yeah, and he doesn't really come off as this greedy billionaire, but it's there in his dialogue that he's going to keep pursuing it no matter what until the very end when they have to escape and run away. But he hadn't been on screen for 13 years, and he reappeared in this, and to me, like he is the 90s or this time period so that really kind of shocked me when I learned that but I think the fact that he's fun on screen plays so well with this character and Mm -hmm. all of these dualities that are happening on screen with should we be doing this you know what kind of principles are we acting against as man and with history and then there's the greed and family aspect of it too which is where the heart of the drama comes from, but also doesn't make sense that, you know, you're going to bring your family to this island that hasn't been tested yet and isn't really safe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get it, but yeah, I would have tested the fences and made sure everything worked before I'm bringing my grandchildren to this potentially fatal experience. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I definitely think that Richard Attenborough playing Santa in the Miracle on 34th <laughs> Street remake yeah, helps with it. this when you're watching it to see him <laughs> as just this kind of jolly old rich man. But I do think it works best to have him at least come across at the beginning as somewhat warm and, I don't know, gentle. For He's not like a cartoon billionaire. He's not like Lex Luthor or someone like that who you see as this... Or like a Bond villain, right? That's what makes that character so great. And Sean Connery was considered for the part before Richard Attenborough. But I I can't really see that. I can really only see Richard Attenborough when I think of Jurassic Park and when I think of that role. Because I do think kind of it, it makes sense for him to come across as a bit friendlier right away. And yes, Mm -hmm. I agree with you also, you know, as we're thinking about casting and thinking about these characters that Dennis, a.k.a. Wayne Knight, a.k.a. Newman in Seinfeld, is kind of a funny character to have be your character who is like who is smuggling out the DNA for the rivals. Mm -hmm. It's pretty funny, I think, because it adds like a comedic layer to it. It's again, like he's not some corporate mastermind or anything he's just the one who decides to take on this bribe and do it which i think then again like makes his death even funnier (laughs) when Mm -hmm. that comes the possibility that he's going to get away with this information right is only something that exists for a pretty short time within the movie and then i think the script 
pivots to just being about the security system and about everyone just escaping and figuring out a way to make everything safer again. So I liked that part of it and how that just becomes like a little a little side plot to the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. Well, this also plays with another fun part of the movie, which is all the humans think they can control everything, but there's always something that goes awry. I mean, the storm is a big one for everybody, but with him especially, I think the casting plays into the comedy of the movie or those lighthearted moments that could be a good or bad thing. But with him you know something is going to go wrong. Mm -hmm. There's some mischievous element and that kind of leads into these other elements of the film where nothing goes how they plan. You know, the storm, especially for him, you know, derails his car and then he loses that bottle and his glasses and he can't see anything. He's dead. The other big one is that this island is only populated by female dinosaurs and they can't repopulate. Mm -hmm. And I love the shot when you see all of those broken eggshells in the park. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's scary. (laughs) Yeah. It's like, oh, here we go. Now we're going to get into the fun, the drama, the gore, the grit of everything. But it's either like something went very awry, or is it like this Virgin Mary kind of concept? So that's one part where, like, God comes in and you have the quote by Ian in the car with Ellie. It's probably the most well-known quote of the movie, but he goes, God creates dinosaurs, God destroys dinosaurs, God creates man, man destroys God, man creates dinosaurs. And she responds, dinosaurs eat man, woman inherits the earth. So there are these little elements of gender and religion in this movie that I think having Laura Dern there is just the perfect person to be doing that. But it opens this floodgate for all of these ideas. Yeah, I totally agree. I love Laura Dern in this movie. I feel like she's perfect for Sattler and she was his first choice for the part. And there are times when just reading information about the casting for this movie And thinking about some of the other options, I'm so glad they went with the cast that they have. Mm -hmm. Like Gwyneth Paltrow, I'm not sure I could see her in this part. (laughs) I think part of that is just how we think of Gwyneth today. But even 90s (laughs) Gwyneth, this just feels like a Laura Dern part. But yeah, like you mentioned, I think those questions that come up again about like things going awry and, you know, what do humans not understand? What did they not plan for? And I believe like one of the things that they mention is that because they've messed with this DNA and if you remember with the amphibian DNA that comes in with the frogs that there are animals that can change their sex if they're in a particular environment to continue breeding and it's little details like that in science where if you had people on board who understood these things and who could actually think about the future possibilities of why this could be bad, this wouldn't happen. And of course, animals can figure out ways to, you know, overcome the obstacles of their environments that have been created for them if they're not, you know, what they were naturally a part of. And that was one of the things that Spielberg really considered during this movie was that he didn't want the dinosaurs to seem like monsters 
necessarily. He didn't want to make a straight monster movie. Instead, he wanted them to seem like animals and to think about like the power that animals can have over humans, which I think is another just great detail that he considered when he was making this movie. We should talk about, though, you brought up the minimal CGI and the creature design in this movie. So when we do our Oscar contender series and we talk about visual effects, specifically the nominees, we typically bring up how many VFX shots are in a film. Usually, if it's heavy VFX, that number can be anywhere from like 500 on. Like it can be pretty intense and... For Jurassic Park, the studio Industrial Light and Magic, ILM, they've reported that they've created fewer than 60 VFX shots of the fully CG dinosaurs. So, so much of this movie is practical, right? It's not CG. Mm -hmm. But an interesting thing to consider now that we're 30 years out is just, you know, in a similar way to (laughs) these scientists figuring out a way to create dinosaurs for spectacle in the film, did the commercial success of this movie have an effect on future directors and filmmakers in thinking that in order for audiences to be gripped by a film, they need to make it this huge CG-heavy experience? Right? Like, we need to make it bigger and better than what came out in 1993. And you can even see that in some of the Jurassic Park sequels that have come about. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, the new ones with Chris Pratt, they do not hold a candle to this one, but they are filled, filled to the brim with CG. I mean, I think there are so many other problems with the newer films, too. Just, you know, needing to continue <laughs> IP. Mm-hmm. The scripts are not compared to this there at all. The other thing is that this was based on a novel on Michael Crichton's book, which Spielberg bought even before it was released, that he gave Crichton 500k extra to write the screenplay for the film. So I think having that source material obviously mm-hmm. helped at least a little bit, whereas the newer films just want to keep this going and the dinosaurs and all of the action and adventure without much plot behind it. And maybe that relates to Indiana Jones, which has just come out too, and how that's based on Spielberg's originals. Mm -hmm. But you all, I mean, it's just Spielberg. Like there are so many amazing shots in this movie. And I should mention the DP here, Dean Cundy. It's not Spielberg's usual Janusz Kaminski, which we'll talk about with Schindler's List. But I think just shots that they make, they just had so much fun with this movie. Mm -hmm. Obviously, all the dinosaurs and those sequences. But there's a shot of Jeff Goldblum just spread out on a table like a full-ass meal. (laughs) Just like (laughs) he's hurt, but he looks stunning. Smash. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And then you have the iconic shot of the Velociraptor later on, and the DNA sequence is projected over it as it's moving. I think that's just so beautiful. And then you have the shot of Laura Dern elbow deep in dinosaur dung. It's just so funny and 
almost leans into like camp aspects that I don't know feels even shocking for a 90s movie like to look Mm -hmm. back and see all of these different elements is why it's so fun this movie is constantly surprising and yeah you mentioning that shot of Ian Malcolm with his shirt open I had almost forgotten about it and the context of where it is in the movie doesn't even matter it's almost like Mm -mm. Spielberg was like here's a little gift for the adults watching this movie too just another another one here um it's part of that character too like you have such fun characters here you have grant who is the sam neill character who is very different than malcolm who is much more chaotic and you know he adds a lot of comic relief to the script and then you have grant who is much more i would say like on the straight and narrow he loves dinosaurs he's this dedicated scientist he's the one who protects hammond's grandkids the entire movie so it's just i like the contrast that you have between these different people who are brought to jurassic park to you know witness history being made in the eyes of the people Mm -hmm. at the park one more thing on the cast that I really liked, and I didn't remember this at all on rewatch, it was Samuel Jackson. Yes, I forgot that too. Just amazing. I think he works so well here, even though he's in like the control room. But the fact that him and Newman, again, work together is just really funny. But reading about the movie, he was supposed to have this lengthy death scene where he mm. was chased and killed by raptors. But that entire set was destroyed by an actual hurricane that happened. They filmed in Hawaii. And so they kind of, they scrapped the whole thing. But some of those storm scenes were an actual hurricane, which I think is really cool. Okay, so kind of wrapping up with the movie here. Do you think it was snubbed in any way? I think this movie should have been nominated for Best Picture in 1993. I think that, you know, it being such a huge success at the box office, I feel like Spielberg deserved to have both of his big movies in that year, Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. And it isn't just a blockbuster. It has a good script. The cinematography is fun. The editing is fantastic. The John Williams score that's one of his best scores, one of his most recognizable scores for sure. So I think it has, you know, so many elements working for it. Why couldn't it get in for best picture in 1993? No, I totally agree. I love those. Not that acting is going to get in for an action movie in 93, but definitely some of those other elements. The score, yes, he won for Schindler's List, but why couldn't he be nominated twice? The other ones... There are a lot of Best Picture nominees in the score list. So there's The Fugitive with James Newton Howard, The Remains of the Day by Richard Robbins, and then The Firm by Dave Grusin and The Age of Innocence by Elmer Bernstein. But that, to me, that's absolutely in there. It really is crazy that John Williams made both of these scores in the same year in the same way that Spielberg made both of these films in the same year. Mm Mm-hmm. The Schindler's List score, which we will get to, what a piece of music. Wow. I will just say, if I could give this movie one Oscar, it would be for score. It would be John Williams. It's just the way he has multiple themes in the one song. It's like, Mm -hmm. 
what? Like, it is kind of dark, but adventurous, and then it just opens up into this sweeping music that feels like you're in a theme park. And, like, yes, I've been in that theme park, but it just feels like what you're watching. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is just... I can hum this song. I can listen to it anywhere. I remember giving E.T. score, too, I think, too. So it's Uh just Williams' ability to create these songs out of just a few notes Mm -hmm. that stick with you. And, I mean, there are so many elements to this movie that I love and that I'll rewatch and could probably give it visual effects or even screenplay for how that works. But if you could give this movie an Oscar, what would it be? I love the choice of score. I think it's it's just one of the things that immediately pops into my head when I think of Jurassic Park. When I was younger, I used to add lyrics to the score. I can't oh, believe I'm oh admitting this on the pod, but <laughs> I used to add Wait, the lyrics. Sing. No, I, I can't do it. But the lyrics were just, <laughs> I am a dinosaur to the Jurassic Park theme. So you can do with that what you will. But yes, the score is amazing. <laughs> Oh my god, I love that. <laughs> I'm I'm not gonna sing on the pod, but it it really yeah, the score left a mark. <sighs> I would actually go with visual effects. I just feel like the work from Dennis Murin, Stan Winston, Phil Tippett, and Michael Lantieri is just remarkable. And in thinking about the visual effects of the movie, like we said, not relying on CG creations for these dinosaurs. And just thinking very thoughtfully about how these dinosaurs would move, how they would react to things. And thinking about, you know, how Spielberg didn't want life-size dinosaurs in the film. And he brought in this team to think about, you know, these animatronic dinosaurs or how they could think about things like birds and reptiles and the science that is out there today. When you first see that T-Rex, just knowing that that was the work of this team, I think they absolutely deserve that Oscar. Yeah, and I read about compositing, which is like mixing different elements into one shot. With the T-Rex took six hours each frame. And I'm like, oh my god. The time, the work, the precision to making it feel real. It feels effortless watching it. So to think there was that much going into it, I mean, that's that's movie making. That's the magic. Exactly. Okay, on to a much more somber affair with Schindler's List. Description here. Businessman Oscar Schindler arrives in Krakow in 1939, ready to make his fortune from World War II, which has just started. After joining the Nazi party, primarily for political expediency, he staffs his factory with Jewish workers for similarly pragmatic reasons. When the SS begins exterminating Jews in the Krakow ghetto, Schindler arranges to have his workers protected to keep his factory in operation, but soon realizes that in doing so, he is also saving innocent lives. This was directed by Steven Spielberg and stars Liam Neeson, Ray Fiennes, Ben Kingsley, Caroline Goodall, Embeth Davids, and more. This won seven Oscars, picture, director, adapted screenplay, original score, film editing, cinematography, and art direction, and was nominated for five others, actor for Neeson, supporting actor for Fines, makeup, sound, and costume design. 
So in order for Schindler's List to happen, which was a passion project for Spielberg once it came along and he finally thought he was ready to make the movie, he only got the green light once he agreed to make Jurassic Park. So this was the deal that was set up at the time. There are actually many deals that went into this, and we can talk a little bit about the production and other directors that were initially slated to make this or in conversations to make this, but it went to Spielberg, and he actually ended up doing post for Jurassic Park while he was in Poland shooting Schindler's List. So this was an overlapping thing for him. He was working on both simultaneously, which... I can't imagine like doing that, having that much on your plate while you're making something this heavy and this personal. But when did you first see Schindler's List and what did you think of it on rewatch or was this a first time watch for you? No, I had seen okay. this growing up. I figured. I don't think it was in school or anything. I feel like you could watch this in history class because, I mean, we can just start with the black and white of it or I guess the transition in the beginning Mm-hmm. when they light the candles in color and then you see the smoke in black and white and how that match cuts to the smoke of the factory it not only feels like you're going back in time but it feels very documentary it has that mm-hmm. grit it has that somber almost lifeless attitude which i mean it's the 90s by now we're well into color so choosing black and white is obviously important for Spielberg and I think it plays really well with this movie but that alone I mean we get the script in the beginning of the time and what's happening and how all the Jews are being sent to live in the city pre-ghetto just in how Spielberg captures everything it feels real it may not be Shoah the documentary by Claude Lanzmann but we are in there we are with these people we are in close-up and it feels like you're alongside them and that is just the horror of this movie i watched it on dvd and i had to flip it was a two-sided dvd Mm -hmm. so having to stop it was like oh thank god because it is just so heavy for a reason obviously but you just need a break watching it it's a three plus hour masterpiece but you feel it every moment and that gets into the characters too and this duality between Schindler and Goats. It's bringing to life this other world that we couldn't imagine today, that he puts you right in it. And that is part of what really succeeds for me. I'm assuming this was a rewatch for you. But what's your relationship with this movie? Yeah, I remember growing up hearing about this movie and hearing that it was important mostly from my parents and just from other, I would say, adults in the room, teachers, people like that who said Schindler's List, what a movie. This is this incredible film. One day you'll get to watch it. And I actually watched it in eighth grade um, on a double VHS. And, you know, eighth grade in some ways isn't too young to watch it because it is a historic, historical document in a way. Spielberg, like you mentioned, shot this film like a documentary. He did not storyboard it like he does most of his other films, like he did with Jurassic Park. Instead, he, and he didn't use Steadicam, he used a lot of handheld, and the way that he filmed it feels like a documentary. So in that way, I think it makes perfect sense for teachers or for parents to think, like, maybe this is okay to show to 
someone who's learning about the Holocaust in school for the first time. You know, it is very heavy. It is very graphic in so many ways, but I think that it really succeeds in showing you the horrors of this time in history. But watching it then, I still don't think I got it in the way that I got it when I watched it last week. I was a mess, a full mess watching this, like weeping throughout the movie. The epilogue absolutely just took my breath away. Mm -hmm. I totally forgot about the epilogue. We'll talk about it for sure. But what I realized this time was that, yes, this movie feels, like I said, like a historical document, like something that's capturing what happened to these people in the 30s and 40s. But this time I saw its urgency in a way that I hadn't seen as dramatically before, I would say. Because when you're learning about the Holocaust growing up, when you're learning about World War II, there's this distance to it. And you're learning about how horrific it is and the idea that something like this could never happen again. But when I was watching it this time, I was thinking about parallels to today and how this could absolutely happen again. Not in the same way, maybe, not with the same groups of people, but the idea that this sort of hatred was just all over this movie. And I think what he does so well in it is he shows the step-by-step process. He shows how things like this gradually happen over time. And he keeps the camera on individuals and shows their response and their reaction to these little things that grow more and more horrifying as the film goes on. Ebert said this in his initial review, and I think it's absolutely true that like all great masterpieces, this movie is somehow too short. It could have gone on even longer. And I think that Spielberg really takes his time to show this step-by-step deliberate construction of evil as they're taking things away, as the acts that these Nazis are taking part in and orchestrating become more and more gruesome and in plain sight, right? They're not trying to hide any of it. And that's what is so, so frightening too. And, you know, I think too, again, I I mean, I could talk about this movie for so long, but the idea that, you know, you think about how do 6 million people die Right, That number seems so huge, so massive. But when you watch a film like this, you understand how they did it. It was a deliberate process over time. And he does such a good job of showing that in this movie. I think it's always been essential viewing, but I think it's especially essential viewing 30 years later. It really, really is. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think it's, it's, an, it's a masterpiece. Especially today with all of the xenophobic, anti-Semitic mm-hmm. rhetoric that's happening in this country, in the world. It just astounds me to read that Gen Zers don't believe the Holocaust was real. Oh, it drives me insane. But I mean, also relating this period to our Billy Wilder episode, Wilder was Jewish. He fled Europe because of the rise of the Nazis. So after Hitler became chancellor... He left that following year for Hollywood. So I think it's interesting to think about the period itself, but also how it impacted so many lives. Ones that we can think of, ones with histories that we can't even imagine. And 
that's what Spielberg captures here. You know, we have the girl in the red dress, which is a huge metaphor for all of that. The bloodshed for the people who watched and didn't do anything for all of the innocence that was lost. And yeah, I think watching this at multiple points throughout your life, you can connect with it differently, but there are more and more profound ideas at play and things that will resonate with you a lot different. And Mm -hmm. I think what's really interesting on this watch, and we can talk about Schindler for a bit, is how his transition, I mean, is really abrupt when he sees that girl being wheelbarrowed away and she's dead now and how that is like the switch for him to trying to save as many people as he can but that first part of the movie he's still a businessman he's still trying to make money and it's not necessarily clear that he's trying to save people it seems a function for him getting ahead in life too Mm -hmm. i mean the other side to that is that he wasn't successful (laughs) as a businessman before or after the war either the fact that he pulled this off is really impressive and i think that slow transition for him is what makes the ending and that epilogue with his gravesite so profound and i think the fact that spielberg focused on these two characters is why the movie really works i mean it's a function for the holocaust itself which is just so vast that's why there are so many works on this period today because you can look at or talk about so many different things happening at the time but i think the way he moves through it having those title cards you know it feels like we're slowly walking deeper and deeper into hell mm-hmm. and the feeling just capitalizes and moves you with that so well I mean, I had such a hard time watching it this Mm -hmm. time. I had to really force myself to do it in one go because it is, the build is tough to watch, but it's absolutely essential to understanding what Spielberg is doing. And like you mentioned today, there being Holocaust deniers and people not believing that this happened, which again, feels so horrific and crazy in every way. But one of the reasons why Spielberg made this movie is because He heard at the time that something like 40% of people didn't believe or needed more evidence about the Holocaust, and he couldn't believe that to be true, but he felt like if he was hearing something like that, he had to take matters into his own hands and make this movie. And I loved also learning that all of the royalties and Spielberg's salary for this movie, he decided to forego that and... All that money is a part of the Shoah Foundation, which is his foundation to preserving history for this time. And that's just, again, like something, a movie like this that ended up being very successful. Like that just shows, again, that he was in this for the right reasons. I think that this movie really does exist as completely 100% nonfiction or a documentary, but it does Mm. really exist as something that can teach people about this time in history. And I think he, he put so much care into the right things with this movie too. And one of the things that he is so good at as a filmmaker and that you notice right away in his films, I think is how incredible he is at blocking and shot composition and thinking about how to capture 
action. You know, entertaining might be the wrong word for this movie, but he is a showman still in so many ways. And this movie is like genuinely, it does hold your attention the whole time, despite being difficult to watch. I think he can't quite resist that as a filmmaker. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to hold your attention. And what I see when I watch this movie always is that he has such attention to detail around characters, around faces, around their belongings and possessions and just little spaces within. And because he captures so much in close-up, what he actually does that is so breathtaking to me is that it feels like the world itself in how filled it is with violence and how filled it is with hatred he can't actually capture all of that in one shot you feel like everything around it is just exploding like it's this world that is fully alive and that his camera can't even get all of that so he has to use things like the sound like the score like his camera to make us realize that the horrors of this time cannot be captured completely, you know, in a single shot. You feel everything from outside of that creeping into it. It feels so much bigger than what he's choosing to capture. And that's so brilliant. I have no idea how he did it. But it's just this, like, it feels like it's constantly just expanding and exploding in front of you. Mm-hmm. I think one of the best elements of the movie is the sound and the way it moves between score and soundtrack and silence. It's interesting in a way that this one score in Jurassic wasn't nominated because there's only 51 minutes of score in the film and it's a three hour and 15 minute film. So there's really not much compared to most movies, but the way it functions is so sharp that we have music in the beginning during different scenes, but we don't hear the score for the first almost 20 minutes. I mean, the score is brilliant. It plays on those deeply sad moments and the darkness of the time, but is also really emotional too. And I think how that is contrasted with the sound itself, I mean, this goes back to how I felt about the sound from the Zone of Interest, which I'm sure we'll talk about later mm. this year, but it's that horror. It's hearing the sounds of the furnace or the bodies being shoveled to the screams, to the stampeding and the gunshots and just different objects. You have the typewriters, you have the Nazis giving orders. It's the kids screaming when they're on the buses saying goodbye and they don't know what's happening. They all make you feel a certain way. And that plays into the documentary aspect again of, you know, you get to see how these people move, how frantic everything is, how when they're doing inspections, the women prick their fingers to put blood on their cheeks as blush. I mean, there are so many important scenes in this movie. I don't know if we can talk about all of them. I know. (laughs) But I guess just one that we get early on is when we meet Schindler and he's at this Mm -hmm. party. He's this elusive man that the Nazis don't understand who he is. I think we sort of do by the end of the movie as a viewer, but the way he's introduced, he loves this lavish lifestyle. He has a mistress that his wife meets and, you know, she doesn't trust him. But at the party, when we finally see him, we see that Nazi badge on him too. 
So whether he's mm-hmm. a con man, like Ebert calls him, whether he wears this veil, this mask the whole time, the complexity of the movie of this character comes through and how he uses that veil to trick certain people along the way. And there's some great quotes with this too that we can mention. Yeah, I think the introduction to Schindler is really important also because like you shared earlier, he's not that good at his job early on. Like he's not this incredible businessman. He's someone who you can't necessarily trust. He's a womanizer. When we meet his wife and she effectively tells him like, I'll stay if there aren't any other girls. And then it's an immediate cut to of her going away on the train. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like you have this guy who is by all means imperfect, who ends up slowly over time realizing what he can do by employing these Jewish people in his factories. That always works for me because he doesn't feel like some heroic person from the get-go. He's a guy who was almost lost to history, really, with what he did, too. I mean, that's another great story that came from this. Poldek Pfefferberg, who was one of the Jewish people that Schindler saved, he went around telling so many people this story in hopes that they would make this movie. And it was luck that Thomas Keneally, who wrote the book, stopped into his like leather goods shop and he heard this story from him. Otherwise, like... Who knows if we would even know about what Oscar Schindler did. But because he was such an unlikely hero to emerge from this time. So, and I like the way that, you know, Spielberg, I think he can be criticized sometimes as an overly sentimental filmmaker. That's something that really works for me. So I don't really have that criticism Mm -hmm. of him. But I think especially here, I don't necessarily see that coming through with, Schindler and his realization throughout the film of what he can do and of the value of a life. I think it's just, it's really, really powerful and it's, it's great writing too. Talking about directors that could have had this movie. The main one is Martin Scorsese who felt like he would have made a totally different movie, a good movie, but one that would have ended probably much, much more bleakly. Yeah, the Scorsese story is interesting, right? Because then what ends up happening is he and Spielberg traded. So Scorsese ended up getting Cape Fear, which I do think is one of, and we'll talk about this when Killers of the Flower Moon comes out, I think it's a fun, good movie, but it is not Schindler's List. And it's not even in the top 10 or so of Martin Scorsese's films for me. So it's an interesting trade, but I actually think it is the perfect trade. Because I don't really think Spielberg could have made as good of a Cape Fear as Martin Scorsese did. But I also think that it's absolutely essential for a Jewish person to make Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a huge part of it. And it's the story itself. It carries more weight for someone like Spielberg, just naturally. You know, the song that's played in this movie was one that Spielberg's grandmother sang to him. So it's like you, you learn things like that. And those are just experiences that no matter how good of a filmmaker Scorsese is, those are just experiences that he didn't have. So I think Spielberg directing it adds a layer of authenticity to it in a way that, you know, when Scorsese is so interested in religion and in evil and in greed and all these themes that come up in Schindler's List. And I think he would have done a great job 
with the movie. I think it would be a different movie, certainly. But I think this belongs to Spielberg. And I'm happy that he got to make it. Yeah, definitely. The other directors considered, too, are interesting. Roman Polanski. Spielberg wanted him to make it. He turned it down. He has a very interesting background when it comes to the Holocaust. He ended up making The Pianist years later, too. And Brian De Palma also turned it down. I can't even imagine his Schindler's list. I like keeping him in my B-movie basket. Right. Fun (laughs) 80s. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the fact that Spielberg got the book sent to him, and he really had the rights, and he could choose a director, and Scorsese was like, just direct it yourself. Mm -hmm. Even that, thinking about the weight of the movie, it was just a smart piece of advice that shows how much care they all wanted to put into it. And they Mm -hmm. believed in him. John Williams didn't even think he was right for this. And there was a famous line that Spielberg said, yeah, I would have worked with someone else, but they're all dead. And I think today, John Williams is that guy. He is Mm -hmm. the person to have created this. And it just fits so well. Yes, they've collaborated a bunch, but he is that other composing giant that we would think of today. Absolutely. And, you know, thinking of Spielberg's key collaborators, I have to say, I know I've been really hard on Janusz Kaminski recently with (laughs) The Fablemans and West Side Story. They're just very classical, like old school films to me when it comes to cinematography. I have to say, this was, I thought, just so well shot. And I thought to myself, okay, I get it. I, like, I, I completely get it now, especially the juxtaposition of the black and white with the candlelight at the beginning in color and then with the girl in the red coat. That is just, I mean, it, it really is truly an iconic shot for a reason. And I think that the symbolism of it is just, it's beautiful and how it comes back to us later. Yeah, it's, it's just incredible work here. So yeah, I understand now. I am owning up to my my mistakes, possibly, in being critical of his work because I thought it was great here. But another scene early on that really just got me this time is when when we see the suitcases being dumped out and sorted. The shoes, Mm -hmm. the jewelry, the watches. It's this frightening bit of irony because you know that they don't know. They're not getting that stuff back. Right. But we know that there's absolutely no intention of them ever getting any of their things ever again. It's the first moment for me in the film where my stomach just sinks and I think, oh no, here we go. We're in for a long, long movie of just more of this and it just gets harder and harder as it goes. Yeah, and not even the unloading, but them rushing as they're forced to leave the city, their apartments, they're packing up all their valuables, their photos of their families, all of the nice cutlery, jewelry, and yeah, it's all for nothing. And then the teeth. Oh. Yes. And then taking all the gold from the teeth. Oh my God. But it's that slow descent again of, we have a line at the beginning. I'm not essential. I teach history and literature to women when they arrive at the camp and they're doing roll call. She goes, oh, the worst is over. We are workers now of them not understanding or knowing the capacity for what these Nazis have in store for them. And it's just awful. One of my favorite sequences of the movie, 
of just how he's capturing the moment is when everyone's left the city, but the soldiers are listening in the building. They have their like stethoscope listening for movement upstairs. And when you see someone getting out of the piano and stepping on the keys and they rush up, but it's this wide shot of the city and there's this really beautiful score happening that you think is non-diegetic, but it's actually the soldier playing Mozart on that piano diegetically. And you see the different windows being lit up by the gunfire. And it's this really operatic moment that is just beyond, beyond, beyond chilling. And yet it's so beautiful in how it's capturing what is happening in that moment. That's the brilliance of Kaminsky and Spielberg here, too, is that you have these very beautiful striking shots but you also have this camera that is moving through these buildings and through these streets in a way that feels like a verite style or a documentary Mm -hmm. so it's the combination of the two styles i think really is what sets this film apart and what makes it yes such a a horrific film to watch, but also a really beautiful one as well in terms of shot composition and cinematography. I want to talk about Ray Fiennes as Amon Gert because he is one of the most evil people ever mm-hmm. on film. Yeah. Yeah. And his introduction is brilliant because you also see his horrific, I don't know if I want to call it sense of humor, but just his complete disregard for the seriousness or the scope of the situation he's he has this like handkerchief up to his nose which makes you think of how horrible it probably smells there but also just Mm -hmm. that he he's disgusted by everything and we haven't even seen him kill anyone yet at this point we just know he's disgusting as a person and then when the other nazi asks him if he has any questions the line that he says there, I can't remember the exact line now, but it's, he's like, yeah, can you roll up the top? It's freezing. It's like, ugh. <laughs> ugh. Yeah. Just like a just despicable person. But I love that Spielberg found for Schindler and for Gut two relative unknowns. Neeson, he had only seen him in a Broadway version of Anna Christie on stage and Ray Fiennes had only been in two films, and they were not really well known to wow. anyone. So, you know, these two people who I would consider major actors now, this was their first big movie, which is a huge deal because I think they're mm-hmm. both, I can't really imagine anyone else in those parts. Yeah, with Fiennes' character, it's really just the worst qualities of any human all in one person. That moment you talk about, anytime he says anything about grouping the Jewish people together, either in making room for new Hungarians arriving and what that means. The other scene when Schindler wants to give them water and he sprays the train and Goat says that he's giving them too much hope. It's awful, but even in those moments, you can see the difference in humanity between these characters even when Goetz is alone and like he's being examined by the doctor and he's like, oh, you need to watch what you eat. You need to kind of take mm-hmm. care of yourself. Meanwhile, in the background is the camp. That's 
Ugh. the bleakness of those shots too when we're above the camp and looking down and can see them in the background but it's that he lives this lavish lifestyle somehow has zero empathy he's just totally apathetic to these people he has to be one of the greatest villains of all time yeah and the jarring realization when i watched this that i forgot about from my first watch was when you realize that the woman who plays his maid helen hirsch is miss honey from matilda Mm -hmm. oh i saw that immediately it makes it so much worse it would be awful either way because he picks the most terrified woman to be his maid which is just again just shows his sadistic nature but yeah Mm -hmm. seeing her in that part is so difficult too because you just associate her either way with at least i do from growing up with matilda with goodness and Mm -hmm. just this like sweetness it just is so difficult to watch but i think his performance is fantastic i think neeson is great honestly ben kingsley as itzak stern is i think just like the sneaky mvp of this movie for me you can see so much so much in his eyes and there are moments throughout the film where you think that you know something might happen to him where he mistakenly gets put in a train because he forgets his card and he almost ends up going away on that train until they stop him thankfully but there's a moment later when he and schindler having this conversation and Schindler says that they're, you know, they're going to drink when this ends. Like, it has to end eventually, Schindler tells him. Like, this isn't going to go on forever. And he says, I was going to say we should have a drink then. And there's a moment when Stern looks at him and he says, I think I better have that drink now. Because he just, as a Jewish person, like, he doesn't know when it's going to end. He he doesn't have that luxury that Schindler does and he thinks he's going to die so he thinks like I can't wait for that there isn't a then for me it is only now it's only this immediate time like he can't even you know see really until tomorrow and that's one of the most heartbreaking parts of the movie for me and you just see this little tear come out of Kingsley's eye he's just yeah he's amazing he should have gotten a supporting actor nomination originally going to be Dustin Hoffman too And I don't Mm. think Dustin Hoffman would have worked in that part at all. I think he might have really turned it up. (laughs) And I think you need it to be a little bit more level. Even at a younger age, I feel like Kingsley has that maturity for this role. And Mm. Hoffman had had fun roles. He has plenty after this. But the way Kingsley can be serious in every moment, I think is really important for their relationship too. Because it's one that develops over the film. But like you're saying, it's not one that you can depend on. You can't anticipate that any of these people will survive until the next scene. So I think how we do get to know him and the way that he doesn't take that for granted either is really important. And I think, you know, at the end of the movie, once he has survived, once they've made it, the Russian troops have liberated the camp. You see the ring being made that they give him, and he's trying to convince Schindler that he did do a good job, that Mm -hmm. the list is an absolute good, the list is life, and, you know, kind of having to flip there, because Schindler now knows that he'll be hunted down and persecuted for what happened, but Stern now has to make him feel good, has to remind 
Schindler of the lives, the 1,200 people that he saved, and that while he feels like he could have done more, there's still a greatness in that. And that's when it really hits home and you really break down as a viewer because you see the connection that they've made and that it wasn't meant to last forever, but that he did help him survive this atrocity. Yeah, and I I do like that at the end where he realizes that he could have done more and that idea that, you know, he really, I think, understands by the end the the meaning and the value of a life and looking at his car and thinking, I don't need this car. Why did I keep the car? I didn't need that. That could have been one more. Thinking about it like that, I think, is important for that character to think about in the end of, like, how wasteful he might have been in the past and how and what he could have done. So I like you know, seeing him finally crack at the end and realizing what he could have done. But the epilogue, I think, is a really beautiful way to end the movie because it reminds you, you know, as you get this transition from black and white to color of the actors who play the liberated Jewish people, you transition to color of the real versions of them in many cases or their descendants and all laying stones on Schindler's grave, you know, which shows the importance that he had to these people and how many people's lives he saved. And that just, this part makes me weep. Oh my God, I, I really, really lost it. It was, it's very, very moving. And it reminds you again of the reality and the seriousness of the film and of history. It's honestly one of the greatest cuts on film, I think, too, is when they leave the camp and they're walking away. And then we cut to this group of people now in color walking over this hillside in modern day. That just absolutely throws you. Yeah, it's just a beautiful, simple moment that finishing the film, just having this long take of seeing this long line of people waiting to pass the gravestone, it shows the importance and the legacy of not only Schindler, but the people he saved and the people that survived from the Holocaust. I mean, hearing about the descendants, you just kind of imagine how many there are today too. And if that is like exponential, you just kind of hope that history can be passed on and learned from. Exactly. So do you think that anything was snubbed? I mean, you mentioned Ben Kingsley, but the other big one to me would have been Miss Honey and Beth Davids mm-hmm. as Helen Hirsch, who goes through these horrors working under goats. And you have that impeccable sequence of the cross cutting when they're upstairs at the party to Oof, him yeah. downstairs hitting her in the basement. And I think she does a fantastic job in this movie being in that position you really that's one of the characters that you really get to see the pain of having to be so close to these leaders these nazis of the camp and she's this character to him that is untouchable but you still know that something could happen so i think every scene with her you still feel that intensity of wondering if she'll survive yeah I think that's a great pick. Yes, definitely for me. I would have added Kingsley to the list for supporting actor. I really, really love him in this movie. And yeah, I think Embeth Davids absolutely could have gotten into supporting actress. 
It's hard to pick snubs here because it was nominated for so many and won so many. But I think those two, when it comes to acting, Mm -hmm. I also would have given the win to Ray Fiennes for supporting actor. I understand the Tommy Lee Jones win for The Fugitive, but I personally would have chosen Fiennes for the win. Could we have delayed his win until No Country for Old Men and given it to Fiennes here? Probably not. That's the hard thing. So I love him as Sheriff Bell in No Country for Old Men, but that's the Daniel Day-Lewis, Javier Bardem year. And I don't think either of them were losing actor or supporting. Yeah. So I get it. I just, that's just how I would have voted personally. Mm-hmm. And if you could give this movie one Oscar, what would it be? I am giving it to Spielberg for director. I think he absolutely deserves it. Everything we've talked about, I think this was such a collaborative movie too. Every single element I think deserves to win. And how he managed this, like we said earlier, while he was finishing up Jurassic Park. It's like coming home from work and having to do more work. It's like, no, thank you, especially after (laughs) this material. And I can only imagine how things were on set, how somber the mood was. But having to craft and create these timeless moments, it's really only him I could have imagined doing that. So this, I think, in great contrast to Jurassic Park, is just a tremendous feat having directed Schindler's List. Which Oscar would you give this movie? I would give Spielberg Best Director. It's just such a phenomenal feat. It is one of his masterpieces. I think, you know, while it's not my favorite Spielberg movie, it's definitely up there among his best, I think, for me. And I just think about the scope of this movie and the weight of a project like this on a person and how he just, for me, did everything right. He's the only person who could have made this movie and he made so many incredible choices from the girl with the red coat to not subtitling the German to keep us in the dark at times to changing up the way that he made this film compared to his other films. I think it just stands apart in his filmography. And I'm very glad that he did end up winning the Oscar for this. Mm-hmm. Very well deserved. Well, two great films from Spielberg. I love talking about these. We definitely have more to cover from him, but I think just two quintessential 90s films, too, that really are amazing on rewatch. I'm so glad that we covered both of these today. Two jewels in Spielberg's filmography. Go watch Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Both are available to rent, but also highly recommend getting the physical media versions of these two, just because they're both wonderful films. Next time on Oscar Wilde's, We will have a returning guest back with us. We're so excited to welcome Ryan Lamb back to the pod. We will be doing a movie draft celebrating Disney's centennial. So we'll be going through a lot of different categories, like different decades in Disney, all sorts of different facets of the House of Mouse. And Ryan is truly the best person to speak on it, as he is a big fan of the Disney world. So we're very excited to welcome him back. It's always, always a joy having him on the pod. It'll be very funny. There's always a lot of laughter when he comes back on. Oh, absolutely. And I think having a draft with Ryan, we've never done before. And I'm very excited for this and to see his choices in all of our categories. (laughs) It's going to be a lot of fun. And 
we've all been working very hard on rewatching these movies. So I think yes. some small gems will also be coming up. So I'm excited to get to those. Yeah. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode on Spielberg's 1993. Again, as a reminder, let us know if you think of another director who's had another great year and maybe we'll cover it in the future. But if you like our show, please feel free to rate, review, and follow. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok now at Oscar Wilde Pod. And if you really like our show, you can subscribe on Patreon for bonus content at patreon.com slash Oscar Wilde. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you very soon. Thank you.